Hi, you're tuned in to 90.7 FM, KALX Berkeley. I'm Andrew Sainting, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where we speak to UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world. Today, I'm joined by Sada Kahanamoku from the Department of Integrative Biology. Welcome to the show, Sada. Hey, Andrew. How's it going? It's going great. How are you? I'm surviving. Well, I feel good. like that's a really appropriate answer for right now, you know, September right. 2021. What's going on with you in graduate school these days? Yeah, so I'm a fifth year um, PhD candidate in IB, uh, which is, you're also in my cohort, so I think maybe you understand where I'm at right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, the way I like to talk about grad school to like my mom, who, you know, doesn't really know what it's about, is that it kind of is like this adventure where you're going like through lots of like peaks and valleys and, you know, a really like treacherous, twisty, turny road. And right now I'm in a very deep valley. And I'm like working to climb myself out of it, but I'm in the part of the PhD that a lot of people talk about or like complain about after they graduate as like being a time when you're like, why am I doing this? (laughs) Why am I here? What is going on? But yeah, I'm kind of in like the depths of collecting data and I can tell that there is a light at the end of the tunnel, but I can't see it yet. So yeah, makes for fun dinner conversation. <laughs> well, that was, that's a great place to start the interview about your exciting research. <laughs> <laughs> so exciting. <laughs> so sorry to hear that you're in the valley, but hopefully maybe talking about your research will maybe spark some more interest and fun in it. So what are you actually studying? Yeah, so I call myself a historical ecologist. Basically, I'm not exactly a modern ecologist because I don't study things that are happening right now in ecosystems. Um, And I'm also not a paleoecologist or a paleontologist because I don't really study the deep time fossil record. So, you know, like tens of thousands to hundreds of millions of years ago, that stuff's like a little too old for me. Right now, I'm focusing on a period of time that generally covers the 20th century um, off of the coast of California in this place called the Santa Barbara Basin which is right next to Santa Barbara. And the reason I'm so focused on this, like one particular time period that basically spans like 100 to 150 years is because there's this really awesome sub-fossil record there that basically captures every single year of time. Like each of the layers in like the sand that we collect from the bottom of the basin represents about a year. Um, And each of those layers has fossils in them. And the fossils make up this like really cool ecosystem um, that includes planktic things, but then also things that live on the seafloor. It sometimes has like little bits of fish that fall down from the surface. So yeah, it's this really cool snapshot in time of like what's happening basically from like the top of the surface all the way down to the bottom of the seafloor off of California during the period when California was getting industrialized. It was like immediately after the mission period when the Americans came in and, you know, started building factories and like roads and damming up rivers and then like modern day climate change started happening. And so it's this cool window where we get to see what happens to, in my case, I'm focusing on the seafloor ecosystem. So what happens to animals living on the seafloor or organisms living on the seafloor during the early days of climate change up until basically like the 2010s, which is when the record stops. Wow. That sounds super cool. What you said the word sub fossil was, is that, (laughs) Is that not, uh, is there something other than, is that like pre-fossilized bone or something like that? Yeah. Sometimes I describe what I work on as sub-fossil because fossils, you can imagine, right? Like the typical image that people have of a fossil is like a dinosaur bone and rock. And so a lot of times when people talk about fossils, they 
can tend to mean things that are like parts of animals that are preserved in rock or in like some sort of like matrix is what we call it, but like a substance. Um, and sometimes it's the, the original bone itself, but a lot of times that material has been replaced by minerals. And so I call my stuff subfossil, even though it could technically be considered a fossil because it's dead, but it's all in mixed in with sand and it's not like lithified so it hasn't turned into rock yet and it's also all original material so it's the original shells and like fish scales and bones and teeth and stuff all mixed in together so yeah because it's so young and it hasn't had time to lithify and turn into a rock um, sometimes it gets described as subfossil remains i see okay so then you're studying this basin uh santa barbara basin so like what's going on is this pretty standard that you would have this like year by year layering pattern or is that unique to the basin it's a it's actually a pretty unique system because it's this really super weird like low oxygen environment basically it's really hard to survive there if you're a big organism like i think you know there's like no like crabs or like big snails or i don't think there's even fish that live down there i'm not entirely sure though cuz i'm not like a modern biologist but basically there's not a lot of big things that are around to be able to like dig through the sediment and mix up all those really nice layers that we have so the santa barbara basin is really cool because it's one of the few, it's like the only place in the entire ocean to preserve that like yearly snapshot of time so the way i like to talk about it is like in other places if you were to take a straw Imagine that the seafloor is like a layer cake or something. If you were to take a straw and stick it into the layer cake and pull it out, that's basically how we do the coring of the material. And in other places, it's kind of like if you were at like a kid's birthday party, like a toddler had smushed up the layer cake before you put the straw into it. So you get this like, we call it time averaged, but like an average snapshot of what each of the layers would have looked like if somebody hadn't stuck their hands into the cake. But in the Santa Barbara Basin, the cake has not been touched by anybody so you get each of like the little layers really well preserved. And so when we take a core and pull it out, we're able to retain that resolution, which is really nice. There are, I guess, some things living there if you're looking at the remains of organisms. So like what, what kinds of things do live in this place? So I mostly study this group of organisms called benthic foraminifera. Foraminifera, they're like a class of organisms that are basically amoebas with shells. So they're unicellular, but they can get kind of big. Some of them are like, you know, a couple centimeters long. That's super rare, though. The ones that I study tend to be like 100 microns long, which is basically the size of a grain of dust or sand. So those are some of like the main things that make up the, the record that we have in the Santa Barbara Basin that live on the seafloor. And then the rest of the stuff that's in the record tends to come from what we call pelagic environments or basically things that live in the upper water column near the surface of the ocean down to like mid depth. And then beyond that, yeah, there's not that much else that lives on like the seafloor itself in the basin. Because that's yeah. such a like harsh environment. There's not much oxygen. Yeah, exactly. That's a cool place. Yeah. I've never been though. I would love to go maybe someday or like see like a submersible video of the basin. I feel like that'd be really cool. Oh, so you don't go in collect you don't stick the straw and collect the samples that's not part of your research i wish it were um no i got really lucky and basically inherited this core from other people that had worked on it before me so they got to go on the cruise is what we call it like on a really big research ship and like go out to the basin and like drop a drilling you know drop a core and pull it back up and then they had to do all the processing like cutting the core up and washing out all the stuff that 
we didn't care about like the clay material in the core. So I ended up getting like the post-processing part of it. Like everything was washed. So it was just like fossils and bits of animals left in it. But I didn't get to do the fun part of sailing on a big ship. Maybe someday. So what do you do? Like what is the, what do you do now that you have these fossils? Or fossils? (laughs) (laughs) You can call them fossils. It's fine. Yeah, I basically, my main task is I take the material that I have, which is each vial is about a year. And then... (laughs) I have to pick out the benthic forams or like, you know, the, the amoebas that live actually live on the seafloor because we're interested in seafloor ecology and what that ecosystem is doing. And so I basically take this like sandy, dusty material and lay it out under a microscope and use the tiniest paintbrush I can find to individually hand pick up each of the tiny benthic seafloor amoebas and move them into another tray. And then I take that once I finish like picking out every single benthic organism I can find, then I take that and I image it under a really cool like 3D imaging microscope. And then we basically use these bulk images that we take. So we take a picture of the whole sample of everything that we've picked out that's a benthic foram. And I also pick out like other things like fish teeth because I've collaborated that's interested in that just so she can have the data later on. So then I take that like whole sample, image the whole thing, and then we use some really fun um, software that a lab that I was in in undergrad developed um, that I helped to beta test, which was great to cut out each of the individual objects from the image. So make individual images from the big image. And then we use those individual images to do things like figure out what species it is, take measurements on it. So we can understand aspects of how it's like body size and shape are changing through time. Um, and then we also do some really cool things <clears throat> where we can basically in certain organisms, use characteristics on the shell to figure out whether they've reproduced sexually or asexually, or I guess technically whether their parents produced them sexually or asexually. And so we can look at life history traits like reproduction on a like population to population basis over, you know, the last like 100, 150 years. So we basically do, the, the microscope picking is a lot of very tedious work to then get these images that allow us to do lots and lots of science that we wouldn't be able to do to do otherwise. Look at like, you know, actual physical characteristics of life history and these more like hidden characteristics of ecology that you don't normally get in fossil studies because it's really hard to do this type of individual level big data set measurement. So yeah, that part I'm super jazzed about. The picking of the tiny fossils with a tiny paintbrush a little harder (laughs) listen to a lot of podcasts right and those features that you could see whether or not an organism is reproducing or was created by asexual or sexual reproduction are like the feature that tells you whether or not they were produced sexually or asexually um, is basically whether the they're the first chamber that they make on their shell so if you think of like how a snail builds its shell or like a nautilus for example it has like little like lines, like it makes these little spaces in the shell. And so those are chambers. And as it grows, it starts out with like a tiny little shell and then it adds on a chamber and then its body can get bigger. And then it adds on another chamber and then the body can get bigger. So that's what forams do too. And so if you look at the size of that first chamber that it makes, like the first thing that the the organism is living in, if it's a really tiny first chamber, that means that it was produced sexually because 
the organism grew from a zygote, like, you know, like sexual reproduction, like there were two things that merged and then I created a new organism. So it was a really little tiny baby when it was born. But the ones that are produced asexually have really big first chambers because basically the parent dissolves its body a little bit and then clones itself. And the clone uses part of the parent shell to make that first chamber. So it's kind of weird. They're like little like Franken forams. Yeah, that's super cool. Uh, so is every every foram that you're looking at capable of both asexual and sexual reproduction? Great question. The short answer is we don't really know. The long answer is probably, but we don't really know. <laughs> um, yeah, forums are really weird. So we actually know more about them from the fossil record than we do from like modern biological studies. Basically, in the early days of paleontology, they were a really great way to age like rocks and sediments. And so like before we had like radiocarbon dating or, you know, like all these fancy new tools where we can like get like pinpoint the age of uh, rocks really easily. Forums are a great way to figure out how old they were. And so a lot of like a lot of money got put into forum research by the oil industry because they would go around places like California and, you know, Texas, all these places with like land-based oil reserves and take cores and pull them up. And then they would want to know how old each of the rocks were because it would tell them whether or not they were getting close to an oil deposit. So we ended up learning a lot about forams from oil barons wanting to exploit natural resources, <laughs> but we don't actually have a lot of like modern biologists that are interested in this group. Um, there's maybe like a couple of labs that study like how forams live in the world today. So because of this, there's a lot of really basic questions about their biology that we just don't have answers to. And so actually before I started doing my pilot study on like reproduction in the forums, um, this one particular group of forums in Santa Barbara, in the Santa Barbara Basin, we actually didn't really know whether or not there was variation and how much sexual and asexual reproduction a population went through over time. Because you could imagine like maybe within a species, they just have like every, every year, like 70% of them clone themselves and 30% of them you know, actually have sex and do the fun, like genetic recombination thing. And maybe that just, that number stays constant forever. Or maybe every year they have huge swings in how much sexual versus asexual reproduction they go through. And maybe that is driven by like, you know, changes in the environment, like how much food is available, how stressed out they are. Maybe there's a big storm event and they all get like, ah, oh no, I have no food anymore. And now I'm upside down or whatever. Basically, yeah. Like we didn't know whether or not there was any variation in reproduction. And then I did the pilot study on this one particular group in the Santa Barbara Basin. And it turns out that there's actually pretty big variation in reproductive mode. So now we can say, yeah, they do change like what type of reproduction they do over time. And now we're trying to figure out why. The question then, and like you framed it as this basin where, and this time period where, you know, California was being more industrialized and now we're facing more climate change. And so I'm assuming your question kind of takes into account that framing and mm -hmm. your um, like the kinds of things you're looking at are related to how people have impacted the basin. Is that mm -hmm. accurate? And like, have you started to find correlations between human activity and what's going on with the forums? 
Yeah. Um, yeah. That's basically what my like end goal is, is to, you know, figure out, first of all, what's happening with the population, what's there, what are they doing and does what's there and what they're doing change over time. And then pull in a bunch of information about, you know, like human impacts, global change, like climate change, warming, all that stuff, and see whether there's any correlation between just kind of the like observational things, the things that we observe, um, and the data that we have on like environmental and I guess you could call it anthropogenic trends. Yeah, so I'm still kind of in the early phases of trying to determine whether or not like humans or climate change have an impact on this really obscure, like, you know, seafloor ecosystem made up of these tiny amoebas. But we do see some really interesting trends already, which is kind of cool. There's like a little bit of a shift in what's around in the samples. So we call it the assemblage. Basically like the species that make up the dead community of organisms change over time. And so in like older samples, we see a lot more of this one type or more diversity. Um, there's more stuff around. And then in the younger samples, we actually do see a little bit of a like narrowing of diversity. There's a change in the things that are most abundant. And there's also a little bit less of them. So that's really interesting. Don't really know why. I can't tell you yet. Sorry. <laughs> I wish I could, but then I would be done with my PhD. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then we also see a little bit of a change in their body size and shape. And what's really interesting about that to us as like paleo, you know, people trained in paleontology um, is that there's these like, what is it called? Positive correlations between like size changes between species. So basically if one species changes its size, it's not like doing that by itself. Everybody around it is also changing its size. So it's like the whole community is going through a size change at the same time in either direction. They all get bigger or they all get smaller, which means that maybe it could be a number of things. Maybe there's like weird sorting issues going on where maybe we haven't picked up a truly representative sample of the seafloor, or maybe there's something kind of universal going on that's affecting everybody. So. Yeah, yeah. that's super interesting. And then, so the idea is that you would maybe look at like levels of, I don't know, carbon dioxide or, you know, other environmental factors that you have. I guess you have these records going back through the time that you have the course for, and now you're just going to map on the body size changes onto those records and see what comes up. Yeah, basically. Um, one of the really big benefits of working in the recent past is that we have a lot of really good records, like, you know, observational records of like sea surface temperature go back, you know, to the er or the late 1800s. We have a pretty good record of El Nino events in California going back to like the mid 1800s. And then we obviously have records of like population size and growth and which places get dammed and river flow as a result of that. There's all kinds of really, really cool information that we can pull in from just like random things like mission records or the U.S. Census or I don't know, like NOAA, like the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration keeps a bunch of records on just like random, I mean, not random, like important <laughs> aspects of climate and weather and yeah, things having to do with the ocean. So one of the benefits of being a historical ecologist is that unlike being a paleontologist, where you have to guess about a lot of um, environmental things going on in the time period you're working in, we actually just have direct observations. So we can kind of confidently say, yeah, this is what the climate was like. 
And is there any correlation to the ecology? I feel like we that was like a pretty good discussion of your research, but do you want to talk about um, anything in particular else about things you do in grad school? Yeah, I would love to. I normally <laughs> don't talk about my research as much with people. I usually talk about the things that I do that aren't science. Well, they are science, but they're not like my direct science. Yeah. So I also work part-time for Hawaii Sea Grant because I'm from Hawaii and I'm native Hawaiian and I'm really interested in not just like, you know, science itself, but the practice of science and how we do science and who we do science for and who's allowed to do science, all these questions. And so um, I've been trying to channel this into my work with the Center for Integrated Knowledge Systems, um, which is a group run by one of my colleagues and also really good friends, um, Rosie Alagato. She's a professor, I guess, associate professor at the University of Hawaii um, in the School of Oceans and Environment whatever they call it, SOEST. And she also works with an extension agent, Katie Hinson. And yeah, the three of us all work on trying to think about how you do science when you're in a place where there are multiple knowledge systems that are, you know, contributing to our understanding of the place. Um, and also how you do science in a way that is by, for, and beneficial to Indigenous people. So yeah, a lot of us um, as Indigenous scientists kind of end up having to do this really interesting thing where we basically do two PhDs, where one of our PhDs is in like a Western science topic. And then invariably, because you're Indigenous, someone will start to ask you, like, what do Indigenous people think about this? And then you have to like train yourself how to talk about it and, you know, how to like break down those myths that like Indigenous people aren't a monolith and we all have different ways of understanding the world and our ways of understanding the world are science. And that science is just as valid as the Western scientific method. Not that that's a monolith either, but yeah. So <laughs> it's a really fun area to be in, sometimes stressful. But yeah, I'm just really interested in how we do good science that is for the people that live in the places that we study. Do you have any examples of like when, you know, you saw like you had this um, perspective that was informed by your cultural background that you might not have had otherwise yeah I think I like didn't start really thinking about it until maybe the second year of my PhD one of the big pivotal moments in my scientific career when I really realized that I can't separate myself from my science and I like you know like you can't come in as this often sought after but honestly inachievable like unbiased like objective rational scientist <laughs> And yeah, when I realized that that was really not possible was when the Mauna Kea and TMT issue really started growing. And so I don't know if you know much about that. Basically, there's this giant telescope that wants to be put on the summit of Mauna Kea. Um, it's called the 30 meter telescope. It would, you know, like dig pretty deep into the earth to serve a very critical and unique and endangered ecosystem. And it's also trying to be in the place that is considered one of the most important sites to Native Hawaiians. It's like super sacred in many of the ways that we define the term. It is considered to be like Mauna Kea itself is the ancestor to the Hawaiian people. If you In some genealogies, it's also the center of the islands, um, considered like the spiritual center of the islands. And it's also the like basically the watershed for all of Hawaii Island. And so it's this really, really important place to Native Hawaiians. And there have been Hawaiian activists trying to 
you know, keep development of the mountain from happening since the earliest days of astronomy on Mauna Kea, since like the 1960s. As of right now, there are, I think, 13 observatory complexes on the summit, and TMT would be the next one, the 14th, but also the largest. And so they had spent this really long period of time, like trying to listen to the community and hear what Native Hawaiians thought about this place and get lots of feedback. And even though there was you know, a lot of voices saying, we don't really want this to happen. We think this isn't a good idea. They still went forward with it. And in 2015, there was a initial like physical demonstration where they were trying to move construction equipment up the Mauna and a number of Kia'i or mountain protectors blocked the construction equipment from getting up to the summit. And so there was a bit of a standoff there. Super, yeah, super wild. Um, I would encourage people to look into it. And then there was this legal thing that happened where their permits got pulled because they didn't, I guess, engage in due process correctly. So then there was this period of time for like four years or so where TMT was still attempting to get the permits to build on the mountain and Hawaiians were still attempting to get them to consider a different location because there are backup locations that would be suitable as well. So anyway, in 2019, there was this really big physical demonstration where TMT got the permits approved um, basically overnight. A number of Kia'i moved in and um, occupied the road. There's one road going up to the observatories. And it turned into this massive demonstration where I think like over 50,000 people visited the Mauna. There was a bunch of like Hawaiians that came in and allies and all these people to physically block the road and keep the construction equipment from going up. The governor of Hawaii declared a state of emergency because Native Hawaiians were protesting. <laughs> well, Protesting is not the word that we use, but that's what they said. Yeah, state of emergency because Indigenous people are attempting to assert their rights as Indigenous people. Super fun. So then the National Guard was called in and they brought in like these like long range acoustic devices to use against the Kia'i. And at one point, these elders, like we call them kupuna, you know, some of the most important people in our culture. They're the ones that hold the culture and pass it on to us. They took a stand and were on the road to block the equipment from coming up and 33 of them got arrested. And on that day, that was when I was like, whoa, my kupuna are being arrested by these, you know, policemen that are sent by the state to keep us from, you know, exercising our right to protect this land, which is ours. <laughs> and yeah, at that point I was like, wow, I am so just like, deeply frustrated and hurt and sad about this and angry. And I remember I was in the building, like working on the microscope, trying to like just process what was happening and figure out what was going on. And nobody around me seemed to know what was happening. And when I mentioned it, people would be like, oh, that's a bummer. Or yeah, it's like so sad. But there just wasn't really a lot of recognition that we as scientists have power in these spaces and if we were to try to use that power to, you know, like say, hey, maybe this isn't a good idea. Maybe we shouldn't do science that isn't, doesn't have consent. And maybe there are some questions that we just shouldn't be asking or instruments that we shouldn't be building because it harms other people to do so. So at that point, I ended up thankfully getting together with a group of other Hawaiian scientists. Many of them are in Hawaii, but some of them were outside of Hawaii in the Hawaiian diaspora. And we all worked together to, each of us created an opinion piece, like a commentary on Mauna Kea, basically trying to go against this narrative that had been pushed by, unfortunately, a number of scientists that was 
that this conflict, this Mauna Kea conflict was an issue of science versus religion. And we were like, no, it's not. Our science is doable without, you know, desecrating land in this way. We are astronomers as well, but we don't use telescopes in the way that you do. Some of us do. We're not a monolith, but those of us that were writing the papers had to say this. And yeah, we basically had to like try to reframe the narrative to make people realize that we're not fighting the science, we're fighting the process, like how this is done. We didn't like that it was, you know, done in a way that excluded us at every step and didn't take into account our opinions and basically ended pitting our ended up pitting our community against one another. There are still people whose families won't talk to them because of their opinions on Mauna Kea. So yeah, at that point in my life, I realized like science is and always has been done with people and by people and ostensibly for people. And we can never like remove our humanity from our practice of science. Well, this has been a lot of fun, but unfortunately we've run out of time. Is there anything you'd like to leave us with before we go? Yeah. Um, a lot of people from the Bay Area like to go on vacation to Hawaii. I would highly recommend that Bay Area people look into the history of the Hawaiian Kingdom and the illegal overthrow by the U.S. of Native Hawaiians and look into our material reality today and consider instead of vacationing in Hawaii, maybe donate some of that money to Native Hawaiians instead. Today we've been speaking with Sada Kahanamoku from the Department of Integrative Biology about their work on... Uh, benthic forums in the Santa Barbara Basin, and increasing awareness of indigenous practitioners of science. Thanks so much for being on the show, Sada. Thank you, Andrew. I appreciate you listening to me rambling. <laughs> it was great. It was a lot of fun. Tune in in two weeks for the next episode of The Graduates.